This morning, uh, we'll be starting a summer series on the Psalms. We'll be taking a look at assorted Psalms through the summer in no particular order, uh, starting today with Psalm 25. The uh, Reformed tradition, and really the church as a whole, has always had a deep and fervent love for the Psalms, the divinely inspired hymn book of both the Old Testament and New Testament churches. They have held a unique affection and centrality, both in the devotional lives of the people of God and in the public worship of God. It is hard to overestimate their significance for our lives their relevance for our lives, and for the church as a whole. And there are, of course, many stories which can illustrate this love of the Psalters. I remember one particularly moving account, which I heard many years ago. And ever since then, Psalm 25 has been a very special text for me. Um, the story comes from the period of the Covenanters. The Covenanters were Scottish Presbyterians, and they endured enormous persecution in Scotland in the 17th century. During the reign of James II in the 1680s, large parts of Scotland were turned into hunting grounds for the Covenanters. And to this day, this period of Scottish history is known simply as the Killing Times. It's estimated that by 1688, some 18,000 Reformed Presbyterians had either been killed or exiled. And the story I'm referring to comes from that time. It's known as the story of the two Margarets. Both women with the same name. One was an elderly widow. The other was an 18-year-old girl. The two were tied to stakes on the beach at Solway Firth. Firth is a, the Scottish word for bay. The younger girl was further back, closer to the shore, but still out far enough for the waves to cover her. So she could see, as the tide rolled in, the older woman drown. And neither woman recanted their faith in spite of repeated taunts and offers of release. One writer describes the death of the younger girl this way. With her fresh young voice, as the salt waves curled above her breast and all but touched her lips, she sang the 25th Psalm. My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. I never can tell this story without quite getting through it. After thy mercies think on me, and for thy goodness great. Of course, she had the psalm memorized. The writer continues, And so she continued, continued singing until her voice was choked in the rising tide. That's an extraordinary young woman. And this extraordinary text 
was her refuge in death. Death by drowning, age 18. Psalm 25, a martyr's death, I might add. Psalm 25 contains all the elements that have made and still make the Psalter a source of comfort and strength and joy and hope for the church. There is nothing in the universe of literature like the Psalter. I look at this text this morning, three headings. Three headings. Trust, guidance, guilt. Trust, guidance, and guilt. So first, trust. The whole psalm is shot through with this attitude of profound trust in the Lord. There's a real intense, urgent focus here. The text starts, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust, I trust in you. The psalmist, he starts with his own personal sursum corda. He lifts up his soul to the Lord. He confesses his trust and thereby he places himself into the Lord's good hands. And this trust then is not passive. Trust is not resignation. It's an active thing. Notice, I put my trust in you. Human beings are trusting, resting, depending creatures by nature. They're trusting something. And so he actively places his trust into the hands of the Lord. And he realizes he has to do this in a sort of perpetual, constant way. Look at verse 15. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only He will release my feet from the snare. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there you will find your heart. Well, whatever your eyes are on, there you will find your trust. But it's not like you're not trusting something. So this trust is active. But here's the, the, uh, the pain of it, the, the, the drama of it. It's also something which must wait. It has to wait on God's providential timing. It has to submit to his will, his wisdom. Trust waits and thus trust hopes. Verse 5, my hope in you all day long. Even at the end of the psalm, David is still waiting. He's waiting. He says, my hope is in you at the end of verse 21, or in some translations, I wait for you. I mean, this is a big part of life, is it not? In fact, it's basic to life. Paul can say, you were saved to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. Waiting in trust is hard, and sometimes it's excruciatingly hard. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And this is, of course, especially difficult in our age where we're used to instant high-speed access. 
when you can download information from the other side of the world in a second, right, when you can get the oil changed on your car in nine minutes, something subtle can happen to your humanity. And that stuff that happens makes it really hard to wait patiently. I spent 25 years in a culture at IBM where deep impatience was rewarded. Where missing a deadline was treated as if it was a crime against humanity. I can still remember my boss coming into my office and saying, Kevin, I need you to be more impatient with your people. I thought, all right, that's going to be difficult to do as a Christian. So what happens? Your whole notion of what it means to be patient and to wait is shrunk down. And your timeline for what you think is an appropriate response is compressed. I noticed this in myself. I expect email replies, this goes back to my IBM days, in about, I don't know, 15 minutes would be good. Maybe 30. But certainly I just get a reply within an hour. Do you know that there are still people who take four or more hours to respond to their email? What are these people living in the Middle Ages? There are people that take a day, a day and a half. They might as well just string two cans together. <laughs> you know, this whole cultural effect on us was brought home a while ago. I sat for two hours waiting to be seen by a doctor. And, you know, there's only so many magazines you can thumb through. I'm fi I finally get seen. The nurse takes my blood pressure and she says, your blood pressure's good. I said, well, that surprises me. <laughs> because, because I had been sitting out there and I was supposed to be seen two hours ago. And one of the little blurbs I read while I was sitting there sums up the problem. Apparently, a monastery, a Cistercian monastery in Wales, just had to upgrade their internet access to broadband. In the article, the abbot, the, the head of the monastery, was quoted, and he says this, even the brothers were impatient with our current internet access. <laughs> so nobody's immune to this. To live is to wait, and to wait is hard. It requires a kind of strenuous, active trust. And the, the psalmist is in this posture of trust because, as is often the case in the psalms and in life, he has real enemies. Look at verse 2. Let me not be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over him. He speaks of having a net spread for his feet in verse 15. He says that his enemies are legion and they're lethal. Look at verse 19. How numerous are my enemies. How fiercely they hate me. Now, we may not have the same, the, you know, political and military enemies that David had, though we have them too, and often in God's providence they're kept just at bay. But we have enemies. 
principalities and powers. We have enemies buried in our relationships, in our lives. We have enemies buried deep within our skin. And so we have to be sober and alert, trusting, hoping, actively waiting, because we live in a world where there's enemies. Death is an enemy. No one goes through life without enemies. And the chief weapon that's at our disposal here is simply this. It's active trust in the Lord. There's, this is not rocket science. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll direct your paths. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Resist your enemies. They will flee. That's the Christian life in one sentence. Submit yourself to God. Actively trust God. Resist your enemies and they will flee. So that's trust. The second point I want to make from the psalm is guidance. Guidance. Because of course in life we're perplexed. We have setbacks. We need guidance. The first plea for this comes in verse 4. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Look at verse 5. Guide me in your truth and teach me. I think it's important to note that David is not like a foxhole believer. He has enemies. He's in trouble in this psalm. But he's not treating the Lord like an errand boy to get him out of a jam. He has pleas for guidance and they're free from this corrupt self-interest. He wants God to lead him in his ways, in his path, in his truth. He seeks no deliverance. No escape from his enemies, which doesn't lead to righteousness. Unlike, you know, pagans who want pointers and they want omens and they want signs and they want deliverance when they're in trouble. David wants enlightenment. He wants enlightenment. And here we come to something important. It's sort of the ground for why David prays this way. And it is the covenant he mentions the covenant numerous times in the psalm or alludes to it. It's because of the covenant that David trusts God. It's because God's made a covenant with us. In David's time with, Moses, with Abraham and then with Moses and even with himself. But for us in Jesus Christ. This is why we can expect deliverance from our enemies. Look at verses 6 and 7. These are shot through with the language of the covenant. He uses the word here, remember, three times. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love. And the word for love here is the word that's often translated loving kindness. It means covenant love. Steadfast covenant love. Do not remember the sins of my youth. According to your love, remember me. This is an appeal to God who's made promises, who's made a covenant Remember itself, the word remember, it's a covenant word. Right? When we ask God, or when someone in the Bible prays to God to remember something, the thought is not that God has forgotten or that it slipped his mind. When God's called upon to remember, he's being asked to act, to see the situation and act. But more than that, to see the situation and act in terms of his covenant. 
David's not asking for anything that God has not promised to do. Think about that. Does that apply to your prayer life? This is often our problem right here. We are not praying in terms of the covenant. We're praying in terms of whatever. It could be anything. The American dream, our own aspirations, situations that annoy us, things that bother us. David is praying in terms of the covenant. Remember your covenant. Remember your steadfast love. Show me your ways, your truth, your path, your goodness. What God wants in the midst of our distress is quite simple. He wants to transfigure us and transform us and sanctify us into the image of Jesus Christ. That is his chief concern with us in life. That's why all the things in your life are set up the way they are. God wants you to reflect the glorious image of his Son. And so we are to pray in terms of this. We are to remind ourselves of this. You can see this appeal to the covenant again in verse 10. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. Look at verse 14. The Lord confides or gives intimate counsel to those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Guidance for us, for David, comes from inside this covenant relationship. This is not some kind of mystical divination. There's no knowing of God, and there's no friendship with God apart from his covenant. And the covenant is his revealed saving purposes in Jesus Christ, which are now sealed to us in Holy Scripture. Scripture is the document of the covenant. And I would urge you to return to the Psalms this summer because this is the place where we learn about the covenant. To seek guidance, we have to be immersed in Scripture because guidance comes in terms of the covenant. One practice which is very helpful here with the Psalms, since there's 150 of them, is you, you, whatever day of the week it is, you read that psalm. I mean, day of the month. So today's the 22nd. You read Psalm 22. If you have more time, you can read 52, 82, 112, and 142. Five psalms. And in a month, you've read the whole Psalter. But the church has always had a place for this in its life. We don't see it so much in our liturgy, but in the historic liturgies, there's not just three readings. There's usually a fourth one, which is a psalm reading or the singing of a psalm. The psalms are always in the church's liturgy, and they are to be central to your life. If you're having trouble getting some sort of rhythm in Scripture, in Scripture study, then go to the psalms. That's been the historic solution. That's why they're there. They meet you where you are. And that brings us to the third point, guilt. So we've looked at trust, we've talked about guidance, and now there's guilt. And this gets at the heart of what establishes the covenant between God and David, between God and us. Namely, dealing with the issue of guilt. David realizes that to be in covenant with God, to ask for deliverance, to seek guidance, requires that his own guilt be dealt with in an honest way and in a thorough manner. The covenant 
is established first and foremost to deal with our guilt. And here David doesn't blink. He makes an honest confession. Verse 11, For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. There's no mitigation of his sin. His guilt, like ours, is great. But he appeals to God's name. God's covenant faithfulness. It's as if he's saying to God, pardon me as you've bound yourself in blood to do. Look at the end of verse 7. According to your love, remember me. Your covenant love, remember. Look, act, O Lord, on my behalf. And so this covenant mercy, it engulfs, it surrounds David. This is why he expects pardon. This is why he expects deliverance. Look at verses 16 and following. He says this. He says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. This is part of the power of the Psalms. Who cannot relate to these words? I'm lonely, I'm afflicted, relieve the trouble of my heart, free me from my anguish. Now his enemies are clearly in view here, but it's not just his enemies. He doesn't view them in isolation. Look at verse 18, it says, Look on my affliction and distress and take away all my sins. We tend to have two sets of problems in life. Ourselves and everything else. Our sins, our enemies. And David puts them together here. Now, we have to be very careful here. We cannot draw a simple line between our troubles and our sins. We cannot say, look at all this trouble in your life. You must have sinned or you must be sinning. We cannot do that. But what a psalm like this does teach us is we should use all our troubles as opportunities to repent. Troubles are a good occasion to say, what's wrong in my life? What has to be reordered and restructured? Let me repent. That's what David's doing here. So the covenant is a covenant for sinners. For great sinners. For the sins of your youth. And for the sins of middle age and the sins of old age. A covenant for all transgressions. And finally, it's because God has established this covenant that David refers to and fulfilled it in Christ's obedience and blood that we sinners can pray this psalm with confident trust. We have to pray and read the psalms, but as they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as Christians, we are not simply in David's position. And so this prayer is a weapon it's balm for your life because it's a manifesto of trust in the God of the covenant. And it was just that kind of living, active trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the covenant, that enabled the younger Margaret to pray with her dying, drowning breath the writer I quoted at the beginning continues, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. 
By the grace of God, let us imitate her example. Amen.